As we come to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Uh, Gracious Father. And pray now as we come to your word that you would uh, grant to us grace. Um, The grace to know that what we're listening to as this word is read is your word. This is what you're saying. And so we would know that it's from you. Father, that you would then help us as we think about it, to think thoughts that are pleasing to you, thoughts that are right and consistent with this word read, and then that these words would be powerful to work in us by your spirit and transform us that we might live according to that which is true and to do that which is pleasing to you. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Titus and chapter 3. Titus uh, chapter 3. And I want to uh, begin reading with verse 3 and read through the end of the chapter. Uh, Titus chapter 3 please and verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. That our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. What I want to do today, if God will help me, is kind of sum up. We've been in this um, book, Titus, I, I think about 400 minutes together. So about 600, six and a half hours, six, not 600, six and a half hours together. And uh, so really, what's the point? What, we're, we're coming to the end of it. How does Paul end this? Um, and we'll find really ends it quite like he begins. But, but uh, let us move our... Uh, way there he begins in verse 8 he says this saying is trustworthy and i want you to insist on these things now the trustworthy saying seems to be what he has just said from verse 3 
Paul uses this expression, this saying is trustworthy in a variety of ways. Sometimes it refers back to what he's just said. Sometimes it refers to what he's going to say. But it seems that he's, the saying that he's referring to, at least that's all the scholar commentator people think, is that it's the previous statement. What we uh, walked through last Sunday as we call it the six ingredients of, of our salvation. We saw our need from verse 3, our need because of our sin which causes hopelessness and helplessness in us, the misery that comes from sin, not being able to really ever know what it is to to be fully human, to be made in the image of God and to live in such a way that's pleasing to him and that does good. So so we're lost there. And so that's, that's our need. Now, the very source of our salvation is God. Who he is and his, his, his love and his kindness and his mercy and his grace. He is the source, if you will, of our salvation. The ground of our salvation is the work of Christ. He's the one who comes and gives himself for us to redeem us. Not we ourselves, but he for us. That we would be set free from our sin, its guilt and its power. So that we can live, if you will, unto him. And then we, we even see the means through which uh, this comes to us. It comes by way of, of washing, this cleansing of this regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He gives us new life. And this life, new life, means that we're washed from the sin of the old one. And now, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, we're new creations in him. We're new creatures. Something has happened to us. We're really new. Our hearts are different. Our inclinations are different than they had been. And we've been broken from the guilt of our sin and the, the power of the self-centeredness that, that, that drives us to. And now we're free, you see, free then to be those who can live, as we mentioned Unto God. So that's the, the means. And, and then the goal of it is this. We're heirs of the hope of eternal life. We have this inheritance of life eternal. And we know that that life eternal is real life freed from all the impediments of sin. And even its presence. So that we can live, really live, you see. In the presence of God, pleasing to him. So he says, this is trustworthy, so trustworthy, you can really believe this so much, that now, knowing you're freed because of the redemption of Jesus, freed from your sin, now here's what you can do, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Again, I, I don't know about you, but I'm always interested in, the, in, in different phraseology. We're, we're, we're accustomed when we read in the New Testament that we're to believe in Jesus. But here he says, believe in God. Now, that is wrong, of course, A, because it's in the Bible, but B, because we understand why he expresses it that way. Because our belief is really in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're saved by God. The, the Father, it's his plan and his election and his sending of his Son. And it's the Son who's, who comes willingly, joyfully, you see, to, to, to save us, to, to be the ground of our salvation. And then the Spirit comes to, to apply that to our lives. So we believe in God. We say we're saved by God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So those who believe in Him, who know it was the Father's plan and the Father's goodness, who, who sends His Son to die, who gives His Spirit that we might know all of this and come to new life. And now we really live. He says, who believed in God, here's what you're to do. You're to devote yourself, you see, to good 
works. Now, we know these good works don't save us. He said in verse 5, he saved us not because of the works done by us in righteousness, that is righteous works, works that were utterly right according to God's standards. You know, well, we live according to our standards and our standards aren't God's standards. We're not good as he is good. And so it's not our righteousness. But now he says, because you've been freed, because you've been redeemed, because the spirit has washed you and given you new life and lives in you, then you see, now you can devote yourselves to these good works. They're, they're really good, you see. Um, and we mentioned last week then that the good works that we do are, are evidence the evidence that all this has taken place. And that's true, but I don't know why I feel uncomfortable with that. Just to say this, that, that these good works are bundled all together with the whole thing. That was Paul's point in chapter 1 and verse 1. We read this uh, 338 hour, uh, minutes ago. Uh, that um, We read this, that Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. See, we, all of that, that little expression, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, should be read with one breath. It, it's all together, you see. You, you, if it's really faith that comes from a knowledge of the truth, it leads to godliness. If there's no godliness, then it wasn't really that knowledge of the real truth that, that brings about faith. Right? And if there's no faith from the knowledge of the truth, there's no real tr- faith. And if that isn't true, then there's no real godliness. Because it's only that that brings you into this fellowship with God that breaks the power of sin that enables you to live. Does that make sense? So it's all bundled together. It, it comes as a package, really. And so in this final piece of the bundle, if you will, then... Uh, we are to, to, to do these things which are good. It, it, it doesn't merit us anything. It's now our joy. It's now who we are. We go, yes, this is really, this is really life. This is what it's always been meant, if you will, uh, uh, to be. That's, so that's the problem really in the church here in Crete where Titus is, verse 16 of chapter 1, says they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. You see the contradiction there. Because of the bundling of truth and knowledge and godliness. If you say you have faith, but yet you're not living it out by doing that which is good. Then he says, no, that's a problem. You see, you need to correct that. And so that's the sense, the theme really. It's where we're coming to. It's the theme of this, this whole piece from Paul to Titus about the church to correct that. And so, so Titus then is charged really. To, to, to teach what accords with sound doctrine, chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. What accords with this truth is godliness, right? Or the doing of, of that uh, which, is, which, is, which is good, you see. And so, chapter 2, verse 11, as this sound doctrine is laid out, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So that's what we're to do, you see, given what has taken place. And so he says then in verse 14 about Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. You see, bundled together. We, we must be about these things which are good. And then in, in chapter 3, in verse 1, one, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, 
to be ready, you know, just, just on your tiptoes, you know. You're like the sprinter who's in the sprinter's position, down, ready to go, right? As soon as the good work appears to do, boom, you need to be ready, prepared for every, uh, every good work. Uh, and then we have it here in verse uh, 8, where to be careful, that is to be thoughtful, to be thoughtful about these things. We're to take care about these good works. We're to be thoughtful about them. To devote, that is to continue to do them. This is who we are, what we do. To devote themselves to good works. And then verse 14. Uh, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. It's a, we're to study them. We're to study how to do good works. You see, it, it, we're, we're, it, when someone comes and says, I need your help, we shouldn't simply say, well, I don't know how to help you. We should say, how can I learn to help you? How can I, how can I learn about this so that I really can help you? We do it all the time. Uh, parents do it as they prepare to have children. They read books that don't help a lot. But they read books, right? How can I learn to care for my children? You talk to people, that helps a little bit more. Right? You, you, you watch others. So how to learn about this. When you get married, you do premarital counseling. Chad and Tiffany are about to launch the premarital counseling for the spring, you see. And, uh, and again, it, it helps later. But it's, it's good, you see. You begin, you begin to study about, about marriage, right? And you watch people then as you're married and you talk to them. You, you learn. That's what you do. You learn about it. And uh, so how do I really help you? I remember when I was a young pastor, uh, my first job, if you will, uh, I've only had two uh, uh, since you've kept me around. And so um, my first one was in Colorado at a church. And, uh, and I remember I reported for duty uh, the first week in July. I sat down with the senior pastor who was my boss. And he said, oh, by the way, next week I'm going on vacation for three weeks. And so I went back to my little office and I made a list of all the things I needed to learn in a week. <laughs> I was really good with Greek participles, but I wasn't so good at the other stuff. And I knew that's what I'd be called really to do. And so I made a list. How can I learn, you see, to do that which is good in the life of the church? Now, that was mostly to save my job. But, but we're to learn to do that because we are who God has made us to be. And this is the theme, really, of, of the scripture. But the New Testament, uh, let's just stick there. For instance, in Matthew in chapter 6, is Jesus is, is in the midst of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, really, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Uh, he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Now, Jesus begins the sermon by saying, remember, you're poor in spirit, you have nothing in order to. But once you enter the kingdom of God, once it's given to you, by God's grace, you see, then uh, then you're to live it out, you see. And the good works that you do are to reflect who God is. People are to see you and say, that man, that woman, that kid has a great God. Because look, what that God enables them to do, that good that they do. We read it about people, for instance, in Acts in chapter 9 and verse 36. Uh, Luke writes, now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. I mean, this, this characterized this 
Christian woman. She was a follower of Jesus. And as a follower of Jesus, then it could be said of her that she was full of good works and acts of charity. In fact, the promises that we have from God to enable us to do that which is good. For instance, in 2 Corinthians and chapter 9 and verse uh, verse 8, we read, And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He says, God will really enable, this is talking about giving, but he says, God will enable you to do every good work. He'll, he'll supply you with enough to be able to give to help, but, but in every good work, trust him. That's, that's, what, that's who we're about, that's our identity now. We mustn't forget that part of the bundle, that we're to do that which is good. He, he goes on to say this, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. He says he will enable you to do that which is right and that which is good. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. You see, he'll do it in such a way that people will see it and they'll glorify our Father who's in heaven. They'll give thanks to God, not thanks to us. That's the very essence of a good work. The very essence of a good work is a work that's done in such a way that ultimately people give thanks to God. And so do you. Because you know that it was he was about this work, you see. It was his. You'll be enriched to be generous, to produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they'll glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. They'll know because you'll tell them this is from God. Uh, And the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. It's all about God, you see. And then we, we know the passage we cited a lot. It's quite similar to the one that we've just read in, in, um, in Titus chapter 3. But from Ephesians chapter 2 about being saved by grace through faith. It ends like this, that passage. It says, for we are his, that is God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. These good works are so important that they've been ordained by God that we do them. And he's laid them out for us. And so we need to be ready for them. We need to be zealous for them, you see. We need to take care and to think God's thoughts after him so we know what's before us so that we can do that which is good. He's the one who's made us like, made us like this, of course, you see. In Colossians and, and chapter 1, just down the road a bit from where we are in Ephesians. Colossians chapter 1, Paul is praying for this church. If we see verse 9, he says, And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So he wants us to know that which is true. And here's the purpose, verse 10. So that, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruits in Every good work. You see? We're to do that. That's, 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 that's who we're meant to be. And then Second Thessalonians and, and um, chapter 2. This sort of benediction Paul gives to them. He says, And now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Establish. 
what is to be permanent in us is the good works that we do. It's to, they're to be established in us. They're never, ever to leave us. They're always to be a part of us, to be established. He establishes them uh, in our hearts. Um, I could go on, but I'll just leave, leave it at, at that. So, so we're to be about uh, these good works. So what really are them? I mean, how do we understand these good works? Well, they're good, but they're good not by our definition, but by God's definition. That was the problem in the Garden of Eden. We wanted to determine that which is good and evil and to leave God behind you in our own way. And, and that then become, became a self-centered definition always of what is good. You see, that's the problem with sin. We can't break that. No matter what good we may do, the problem is there's still a certain sense of self-congratulations in it. There just is. You know, you can break that. Is God to enable us to do that which is really good, you see. Not simply good in the end result of it. The, the work is good, but the motive is good as well. And the, the ultimate motive, you see, of this good is love. Love to God and love to others. Yesterday morning for the men who, was at, who were at our breakfast, Dan Rudman gave us a definition of of love and the definition that Dan gave us was this. He said, in light of the work of Christ for us, love is our longing for, striving for, sacrificing for the highest good of another for the glory of God. You see? And that definition is, it goes obviously well with the scripture or Dan wouldn't have given it to us, but, but well with this particular passage even and, and how we're to understanding doing that which is really good. You see, it begins in the light of the work of Christ for us. It isn't our own good works. We can't do them in our own being. They're not inherent in us. We're stuck in our selfishness. The only thing that can break that is the redemption that comes through Jesus. And I've said this a ton in the last number of weeks, so I hope it's being established in your minds and hearts that it'll never leave there. That this redemption means that we've been bought. A price has been paid. That's what it means to redeem. And the price has been paid to free us from our slavery to sin, its guilt and its power. What the old hymn writer called the double cure. Its guilt and power. And so you see, uh, we, we want to make sure we get that. And once that's happened, then we realize that by way of the work of the Spirit that we've been washed of all that which is past. And now we've received new life. We really have. I know you don't always feel it. I don't always feel it. It doesn't always seem that way. But it's really true. As I've said to you, I spend many days writing on a legal pad in big words. It's really true. I just do that for myself. I roll it up and throw it away so no one sees it. But, but I, I, I just write that out for me. Because I, I need to cling to that. It's really true. So in light of his work in us, what I must then find and cultivate by his spirit and word, a longing for the highest good of another for the glory of God. To long for it, you see. 
That's what he writes. We're to be zealous for good works. To be a heartbeat, a, a driving thing in us. And we're to strive for it. That is, we're to, to be careful, to be thoughtful about it. To think, how can I do that which is good? What is good to do in this situation for the highest good of others and, 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 and the glory of God? You see, the great thing about this redemption is it frees us from ourselves. It frees us from self-centeredness so that we can actually focus upon others and God's glory, you see. That's this love, this real motive. It's this striving for, being thoughtful about, being devoted to. That's who we are. And we're to learn to study this, of course. We're to, we're to learn about it in the midst of all of this. And so he says, in light of the work of Christ for us, love is our longing for, striving for, and sacrificing. Dan laid out for us yesterday, and, and we've talked about it before as well, that love always requires dying. That's the model of Jesus. He loved, he died. And his word to us is that we're to deny ourselves, take up our cross, put our sinful selves and our own minds and hearts to death and follow him. That's the sense of it, you see. And we can think through the the very idea of of love, you see. And we can begin with, with how Jesus summarizes Love. He summarizes the Ten Commandments by love. To love God and to love one another. And so in our love for God, you see, we must put aside, die to our our own self-centeredness and worship him and him alone and worship him rightfully and hallow his name, not our own. And we, we must then rest utterly and completely in him. And we must love one another, right? We must love our fathers and our mothers, love our parents. We must die to our own self-centeredness as, as children and, and, and submit and to yield to them. To What's their highest good for the glory of God? Not, not my own. And, and we must be faithful in marriage, not commit adultery. So we must die to our own, our own sense of, 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 of emotion and, and certain sexual appetites and, and confine ourselves in joy to be faithful to another, to really love Another to be faithful, you see, in those relationships. We mustn't murder. The positive side of that is we must commit ourselves to the life of others. What makes their life better? How can we fill their lives with that which is really, really life? Uh, we mustn't, mustn't steal or, or, or lie or covet. Uh, we must, rather than want what they have, we must... Be filled with joy when they have it. To to die to our own desires for this or that, you see. And actually when when they're being blessed to be filled with joy. I think I've shared with you before from time to time a profound moment in my own life where this just rang in my own heart uh, when Karen was sick a number of years ago and was in a coma. And you know, there's always you're always alone at two o'clock in the morning, no matter who's around you in those settings. And I was up as I had been for hours and would be for days. And there I was uh, over her bed and and uh, I'm numb, really. I don't know that I was thinking or praying or anything. I was just there watching her breathe. And uh, you know, our hospital has this great tradition: when a baby's born, they play the little lullaby song. 
And so there I was. And the thought occurred to me as that song was being played, somebody's really happy right now. And I could either be envious and jealous and bitter, but the Lord would want me to be happy for them and to enter into their joy at the moment. There's that sense of it. See, that only happens in light of what Christ has done. You see, when, you, when that happens in your life, you go, thank you, Jesus. Because you know, the only way you can do something like that, be happy for another when you're in grief, is to realize God really did it, didn't he? Right. And so you see, it's that. The highest good of another. For the glory of God. That's the very essence of, of love. And so we, we read passages about love. For instance, in, in uh, Dan read uh, 1 Corinthians 13 yesterday. Uh, but let me read uh, Colossians and chapter 3. Similar. Uh, verse 12. Paul writes, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, Bearing with one another. And if one, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all else, and above all these, put on love which binds them all together. You see, all of these are expressions, if you will. Compassion, seeing the need of another, and putting aside your own. So that. How do you do that? Only in light of what Christ has done, you see. But that should be on our minds. We should long to be compassionate people. We should strive to be compassionate people. And we should sacrifice, put to death in ourselves whatever it is that's keeping us from being compassionate people. Kindness, humility, meekness, patience. To put aside, uh, to die to uh, that which we want at the moment so that we can bless someone else at the moment. To be patient, if you will, with them to forgive them, to deny ourselves revenge, even to deny perhaps justice to ourselves, but then to free to forgive, to forgive another. Galatians, in chapter 5, we, we read again a, another list of, 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 of love and what we call the fruits of the Spirit. Um, verse 22 in Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy. It's the joy that you're able to bring to another when you're thinking of their best for the glory of God. That brings joy to people. What can I do to bring you joy? I may have to sacrifice something in order to do that. But what, what can I do to bring you joy? Peace. When I... Bring peace with you and make peace with you. What I, I sacrifice to do that. Peace and patience and kindness and goodness and 
to be faithful, gentle, self-controlled, to have control of myself in such a way that I'm willing and able to die to that which would keep me from bringing joy to you or peace to you or being faithful to you. To have that self-control, you see, to do that out of love that God would enable and help us to do that in the midst of that. And of course, the wrong question, as we know from Jesus, the wrong question is to ask, well, who should I love like this? Right? He really is my neighbor. You remember then the lawyer asked Jesus that question. Jesus, in essence, said that's the wrong question because he didn't answer it. You remember he told a story and he said there was a, a Samaritan who had been robbed and, and left for dead, really beaten up. And so a priest and a Levite didn't help him. But but um, the, but this, this this Samaritan, I'm sorry, came by and 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 blessed him and 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 and, and binded up his wounds and took him to a place where he could be safe and left him and paid for him. And Jesus didn't answer the lawyer's question, which is, who is my neighbor? Who am I supposed to love? But he answered, Jesus put the question like this. He said, who was the neighbor to the man who was robbed? He said, love, people. Just love, right? Be a neighbor who loves who cares for others, that's your concern. Not who am I loving, but are you one who really loves? In light of what Christ has done, you see, Jesus could say that. Because if we just command people to love without having them received that which Christ has done, we're just simply heaping judgment on them. They're not going to be able to do that. But in light of what Christ has done, then we're to be people who Long for, strive, sacrifice for the highest good of another to the glory, you see, of God. And, and that was the problem here that, that Titus finds here. Because there are people who aren't living this out, who aren't loving as they ought. But there, there are people who are uh, living with foolish controversies and, and, uh, and striving about genealogies and dissensions and they're quarreling about the law and all of their stirring up division. They're not, they're not loving in the midst of that. Because why? Well, their doctrine isn't sound. They're straying from that which is true of Christ and what he has done. And they're concentrating their attention on, on things which are apart from that. And division is being stirred up. And so what Paul says to Timothy, that this community of people who belong to God, who have been redeemed and now are to strive after good works, devote themselves to good works, when that isn't happening, when you're not seeing that, then you really must deal with it. And he can deal with it because, you see, we've been given as the church what Jesus called the keys to the kingdom of heaven. I read about that earlier in Matthew in chapter 16, where uh, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And, and uh, they, Peter eventually comes to the point of saying that you're the Christ, the son uh, of the living God. And, and then uh, Jesus makes astounding statements about uh, about Peter, really, and then those who would follow in his step steps, we assume. And uh, he says, verse 18, And I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you, Peter and the church, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, 
And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You see the significance of this letter of Paul to Titus. You see, Titus, I want you to straighten out. I want you to finish what was left undone. So establish the church here. Appoint elders. And now as leaders then, who have the keys of the kingdom of heaven, I want you to open it and close it. That's what what keys do. And you see as the church we have two keys really. One is the preaching of the word. And we open the kingdom of heaven by preaching the truth of Christ. By laying it out for people. Jesus says in John, in chapter 6, verse 37, he says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You see, how does the Father draw people to himself? Later, in this very same chapter, verse 44, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Well, how does the Father draw people to himself? The Father draws people to himself by his spirit and word. The word must go out. And so we're given the word, we're given the gospel, and it's to go out to everybody. We don't know who the Father is drawing and working in, is chosen and all that. As Spurgeon once says, since we don't know the elect because they don't have yellow stripes on their backs, uh, we offer the gospel to everyone. This is what we do. It's a free offer of the gospel. We, we, we invite and we command people to believe it. This is the truth. You'll be lost without it. You'll be saved with it. And so we, we lay out this gospel, give it, you see, to, to everyone. And that, that's an opening, if you will, of the kingdom to all, but yet a closing as well. Because if you don't believe it, if you reject it, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then too, as the church were given this key of of what is historically called discipline, and that's what Titus is called to here in verse 10. He says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Now, now this is just a sentence, of course. So it says, warn him once and twice. You have to read into that the process. You have to read into that. The pain of the process. You might know this in your own life. You might know this if you have a friend who's straying from the Lord. Once made a profession of faith to the Lord, but is straying. You can see it in their lives. And you go to them. And what do you do? You warn them. Is that easy? Not usually. Usually it's painful and emotional and draining. And if they don't receive you and you leave them, you know you have to go back a second time to warn them again. And during the first warning and the second warning, there may be prayer and fasting and and a great deal of emotion spent in the midst of that for your friend. And then you go back a second time and warn them. And when they reject it again, you you leave and you think, "I I, I don't think they're believers. I don't think I can have Christian fellowship with them. 
And there's the same thing with pastors, with elders and churches as people are straying. And, and it might be a situation that seemed to be here where it's affecting the whole church. And so the leaders of the church have to go to this person and warn them once. And it's no different than a personal thing. When you do it with a friend, it's painful. And if the person then doesn't receive the elder or the pastors or all of them, then, then there's a time. And, and during that time, there's great emotion spent. Physical and spiritual emotion, if you will. And prayer. And, and then you go a second time. And again, there's pain here in all of this. This isn't just sort of an objective kind of uh, you know, review. This is something deep. Because you see, we have the keys of the kingdom. And we're binding and loosing and opening and closing. And so the hope when you go is to bring back. But if the person continues to reject, then it's closed, you see. And so Paul's word to Titus and to us is the church has great power. Because you see, we have these keys. And these keys lock and unlock not just a country. It isn't that we can keep people out or in of a country, but out of the kingdom of heaven, depending on how they respond to the gospel and the warnings, you see. Hmm. I know, kind of a downer to end a letter, right? But really true. Really true. And so the question for us is, are we devoting ourselves to good works? That is, in light of what Christ has done, are we longing for, striving for, sacrificing for the highest good of one another to the glory of God? Because you see, that's what Christ has made us to be. And he's done that, of course, by the work of of his cross. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread after giving thanks. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too, he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me, you see. This is what Christ has done to to free us Redeem us, free us from sin's guilt, penalty, and power. So that, in light of what he's done, we may devote ourselves to doing that which is, that which is good. You see. So the question is, do we believe this? Or do we see the fruit of it in our own lives? And if I might then just take these keys that the Lord Jesus has given to us and say this. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That is, if you believe all of this, that he gave himself for us, and then you will be saved. And so as you come to this table as one who 
confesses that Jesus is Lord and believes that God raised him from the dead, as you come to this table, then the kingdom of heaven is yours. But if you don't believe that, and please stay in your seat, or if you come, walk by the elements. Because to take them, the scripture says, will simply heap judgment upon you. Now, I don't know your hearts, obviously. Only the Lord does. So in your coming, this is about you and him, not so much about me, or not even so much about the church. But if you come in faith, you'll be blessed. The kingdom of heaven is yours. Let's pray, Father. I pray for me and for us that as we come to this table today, we would do so in faith in Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you gave us this meal, if you will, and told us what, that it was about you. And that as we gather around this table, that you would be present with us. So we pray that as we come in faith, that you will nurture us, that you will establish this truth within us and cause us, then we pray, to walk in your ways that is to walk in love that is to do that which is good. And Father, when that occurs, God, when that occurs, we can look back and we realize that this is indeed from you and that we and others will give glory to you. So now I pray that you take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that we would know that we are in your presence, Jesus. And you will bless all who come in faith. And you will bless all who come in faith with the kingdom of heaven. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace of Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy. And all those who believe and depend upon Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners. And all those then who understand that the life we're now to lead is life zealous for, devoted to the work of God that is good. To love as he's loved us. That's true for you. I invite you to come. These two sections come down this aisle to my left. These two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread. Dip it in the cup. Just remind yourself. He for us. Please come. Mm-hmm.